0: If you take your Bibles, please turn in them to Isaiah, Prophet Isaiah, chapter 9. There are uh, Bibles supplied for you in the shelf underneath each of the pews. If you're using the pew Bibles, you could find this morning's text on page 573. Page 573. If you're new to reading the Bible. Uh, The larger numbers that you'll see on the page are the chapter numbers, the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. We'll be this morning in Isaiah chapter 9, and I'd like to ask that for now we read just verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah spoke these words, perhaps from 750. B.C., nearly three millennia ago. Let's listen to what the prophet spoke on Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness. I've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, every person who has come into this building, passed through these doors, taken their seat among us now, and if there are any who are watching online, indeed, all people have tasted in some measure of darkness in this life. We've tasted of darkness in this fallen world. We've tasted of darkness in our sorrows and in our sufferings. Many have tasted darkness in watching men and women close to us die. We have all tasted darkness in our own sins that we have committed against you. Would you, Lord, please hold before us your risen and exalted Son as the light of the world, And may He shine on us this morning in the radiance of His beauty and His purity and His willingness to save sinners and to dispel the darkness of our lives. Do this, we ask for the glory of Your Son. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The Apostle Peter, writing to the saints in Asia Minor, says this, 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12, concerning this salvation... things into which angels long to look. One principle you must remember when reading the Old Testament prophets is this, Uh, we Christians, uh, we Christians who have been born again by the Spirit of God, we Christians who have the completed Scriptures, Old and New Testament, we Christians understand the truth with greater clarity than the prophets, okay? Isaiah doesn't have an advantage over you, Christian. You have an advantage over Isaiah. This is for a number of reasons. For starters, we have all the prophets. Not just one. We have the completion of the Old Testament canon and the Old Testament record. But what's more than that is we have the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of God who has come. The Son of God who has revealed to us the Father. The Son of God who has come in fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. And now we have the New Testament which was revealed in part through the events of the death and resurrection of the Son of God. The author to the Hebrews says this, Hebrews 1, verse 1, which we considered one of the equipped classes this morning. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Think men like Isaiah. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So one thing you must be mindful of in reading the prophets is that their their revelation of God's word to us, excuse me, uh, is incomplete. And they're not understanding everything as clearly as we now do, even as they prophesy. They didn't quite understand all that was being revealed. And what we can see in the prophets in subsequent Scripture is that the prophets are sort of looking at the scene in the backyard through slits in the fence. Uh, they're looking at these events that are to come through a kind of filter, uh, through a kind of screen. It's like they're watching the movie in analog. We're watching the movie in high definition. And one of the ways you'll see this play out is that the prophets weren't actually sure how the things they spoke about were going to play out in actual history. In the prophet Isaiah, for example, there is a bit of a depth perception issue. When exactly is this event or that event going to occur? How is it all going to happen? Uh, it would appear for many of the Jews they expected everything revealed in Isaiah to all kind of pile on top of each other in the same actual event. But what we know this side of the cross is that Isaiah anticipates actually thousands of years of history. And two comings of the person of Christ. I don't know where I first heard this illustration. It's not uh, original to me. Uh, But you might think of a mountain range. The prophets are sort of like looking, looking on at a mountain. And if you look at a mountain range from a certain angle, it looks like just one mountain. But as you approach the range or you look at it from a different angle, you see actually it's a series of mountains and there's valleys in between them. That's something the prophets failed to appreciate. There was going to be time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Not all the events were going to take place at the same time. Some truths were going to be inaugurated, and then they were going to be brought to fulfillment and culmination at a later time. There's a depth perception issue. Well, why am I saying all this? Because it will be helpful for us, I hope forever, but especially over the next few weeks for our Advent series. I want us to consider Uh, The event of Advent, the event of Christmas, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ through the lens of Isaiah's prophecy. Uh, The title of this four-week series is Christmas in Isaiah. Uh, Now, you may be thinking, uh, I didn't know uh, Christmas was in Isaiah. Uh, Well, the truth is it's all over Isaiah. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was fond of referring to Isaiah as the gospel of Isaiah. Isaiah the gospel of Matthew, gospel of Mark, gospel of Luke, gospel of John. There's so much gospel, so much Jesus in Isaiah, he would refer to it as the gospel of Isaiah. Some of you, I think, will be going uh, on December 12th to see Handel's Messiah uh, over at Wake Forest. Uh, one thing you'll notice if you read the text of Handel's Messiah, which we give special attention to this time of year as we think upon the incarnation and the coming of Christ, uh, is that a massive amount of his text is coming out of uh, Isaiah's prophecy. Uh, Isaiah is the second most quoted book in the New Testament. When the New Testament authors are looking for Old Testament Scripture to show forth the excellencies of Christ in His person and work, uh, they often turn to Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah tells us about the coming of Christ. He tells us about Christmas and what Christmas will bring. So we'll start here this morning in this first sermon in this four-week Advent series. The title of this first sermon is this, Christmas Brings the Dawning of of light. Christmas brings the dawning of light. Isaiah tells us again and again in his prophecy that light is coming. This image of light is used repeatedly in his prophecy. I want us to look more closely at this light together. Three points this morning. Point number one, this light will be for Israel. This light will be for Israel. I want us to appreciate something of the situation leading up to Isaiah 9. So you want to have your Bibles open uh, to Isaiah. I'm going to have you turn to a couple of places in the book itself. In the opening chapters of Isaiah, God, through His prophet, uh, has been pronouncing judgment on the people of Israel for their sin and disobedience. The nation has engaged in flagrant rebellion against God. They have committed spiritual adultery. They have thrown off God's law, and they have forsaken the covenant that God had made with them. This is rank apostasy, God's people turning their backs on Him. And the opening statements in the first chapter of the book give us a sense of Israel's wickedness. Look at Isaiah chapter 1, if you would. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, I'm going to pull out a few sections that accentuate the exceeding wickedness of the people of Israel. So, Isaiah, God says through His prophet Isaiah, verse 4, Ah, sinful nation, and people laden with iniquity offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Look at verse 10, God speaking to His people says this, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. For those who don't know, Sodom and Gomorrah was a famously wicked city in the Old Testament. And here God is using the name Sodom and Gomorrah to describe His covenant people. So great was their sin. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah, verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Look at verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them." Remember, these are the Lord's covenant people he's describing. If anyone ought to have been obedient to Yahweh, it ought to have been them, but instead they have dealt falsely, they have become hypocrites, they have engaged in flagrant wickedness before God's face, they've spurned His love, they have become, he says, like a whore, and they will come under God's judgment for their sins. The course God's judgment will take, at least in the immediate context, is that He will send Assyria to invade, to destroy, and to take captive the northern kingdom of Israel. For those who don't know, the kingdom of Israel after David and Solomon was divided into two areas, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The kingdom of the north made up of ten of the twelve tribes and the kingdom to the south made up of two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin, often referred to simply as the kingdom of Judah. And in 722 B.C., The Assyrian Empire invaded the northern kingdom, subdued the northern kingdom, and brought those people into captivity. In 586 B.C., the Babylonian Empire would conquer the southern kingdom of Judah as well. Isaiah prophesies in chapter 8, which I ask you to turn to now, of the Assyrian invasion of Israel, northern kingdom. Please follow along as I read in Isaiah 8. So they sinned, and now judgment is coming. We read this verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again, these are the words of the Lord, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Razin and the son of Ramaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is breaking up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the King of Assyria and all His glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Look at verse 16. So Syria is coming, I'm going to conquer the northern kingdom. The Lord says this bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. So Isaiah and some faithful remnant are going to be a sign to the people, speak truth to the people. Verse 19, and when they say to you, the sinful people of Israel, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teaching and to the testimony? What's he saying? Wicked, sinful Israel is going to look for answers from the dead, not from God. And Isaiah is rebuking them. Verse 20, to the teaching and to the testimony if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. And here's... Here's the state of things, verse 21, they will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. As that chapter 8 ends, Israel appears to be forsaken by God. They are under judgment due not to their misfortune, not to their failure to misunderstand, but to their active rebellion against their covenant God. Assyria is coming, and Isaiah says the people will find themselves in distress and darkness, in the gloom of anguish. They will be thrust into, he says, thick darkness because of their sins. That's interesting language, thick darkness. Darkness has to do with sight. Thickness has to do with spatial, tangible things you can feel. It's a metaphor. The darkness is so great, so dark, it like weighs on you. Have you ever been in thick darkness? Been in a place where there are no like city lights around or no stars or something like that? Have you ever been in thick darkness? When you're in thick darkness, you can't see your hand in front of you. You can wave it all you want. You have no sense. Anything is happening. It's thick darkness. Sin always brings us into thick darkness. Not a passing shade. Not a wisp of cloud or fog in front of us. Sin is thick darkness. Israel's broken covenant with God. They've rejected Yahweh. And now there is nothing left for them. But darkness. Or at least. So it would seem. As bad as this looks. What would you expect. The next verse to be. Isaiah 9 verse 1. But. There will be no gloom. For her who was. In anguish. Isaiah 9:1 is for the nation of Israel what Ephesians 2.4 is for the believer. Do you remember how Ephesians 2 begins? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, and You were carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, the passions of your flesh, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the others. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, raised us and made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and seated us with Him in heavenly places." Though we lived in sin and slavery and darkness, God acted on our behalf. That's how Isaiah 9-1 works here. The people have been thrust into deep darkness, but he says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Reading on, in the former time, listen, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nation. So, we need to know a little geography. I don't assume everybody knows this. There were twelve tribes in Israel. They inhabited different regions across the Israelite nation. Zebulun and Naphtali are at the northmost portion of the nation. You have Naphtali up here, and they have Zebulun here, as you're going down, and then you have the Sea of Galilee over here straddling between them. that Zebulun and Naphtali. And whatever is going to happen, this glorious thing that God is going to do, this salvation and deliverance He's going to work in the presence of His people Israel, it's going to start there. Whatever He's going to do is going to begin in Galilee, in Zebulun, in Naphtali. That very specific geography is going to become very relevant in just a few moments. He says in the latter time he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan Galilee of the nations. Verse 2 the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. These people, these Jews, were covered in thick darkness because of their sin, but on them God's going to raise up a great light. A light of revelation, a light of salvation. That will bring an end to their darkness. Light's going to shine on them. And what effect will this dawning of light have? Read on in verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad, when, as, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden... And the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the champing warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What's the effect this light is going to have on Israel? It's going to be joy. It's going to be rejoicing. It's going to be harvest. It's going to be gladness. Yokes and burdens and rods of oppression broken. Bloodshed and warfare and battle are all going to be gone. When this light shines, how will God do this? What's this going to be like when the light finally comes? How is He going to achieve this? Verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The light that's going to come and that's going to shine on these people who dwell in thick darkness is going to be a baby. A child is going to come. He will be the light. A son who God will send. The Messiah, the seed of David will come. He will shine on the nations and he will dispel Israel's darkness. And then I love this last line in verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How will this happen? It's not going to be us. Not the nation. Not through some program of reformation and repentance to try to get back in God's good graces. No, God, in His zeal for His people, in remembrance of His steadfast love and mercy, He's going to do this. God's going to work. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, He will accomplish deliverance and salvation for His people. Over three quarters of a millennium later, 750 years after these words were spoken, how long was 750 years ago? That would put us, I think, in 1273 A.D. That's a long time. 750 years after Isaiah spoke these words, it happened. Matthew 4, verse 12, now when he heard that John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began preaching, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You ever wonder why Jesus' ministry started in Galilee? And why the gospel writers are so intent on making you understand that Jesus' ministry started in Galilee? It's because Isaiah said that's where it was going to start. And the light would first dawn where the darkness first descended. The darkness descended first on Zebulun and Naphtali. There first would God send his light to the people of Israel. There first would he send the Messiah, the Christ, who would preach the gospel of the kingdom and who would shine as light on his people. God will fulfill his word and do precisely down to the particular geography as he had said. Friends, Christmas reminds us that God does not lie, God keeps his word. Proven most compellingly, most sweetly, most profoundly, most convincingly in the sending of His Son in the fullness of time. The light would dawn on Israel, on wicked Israel, disobedient Israel, adulterous Israel, dark Israel. The light would shine on them in the person of God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Point number two. Christmas brings the dawning of light. The first point is the light will be for Israel. Secondly, this light will be for the nations. This light will be for the nations. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah 60. Remember, depth perception here. Just because something happens in Isaiah 9 doesn't mean it's going to happen before what happens in Isaiah 60. Always toggling back and forth on the timeline in Isaiah, turn to Isaiah 60. What is even more shocking and even more wonderful is that Isaiah reveals that this dawning of light will shine not only on Israel, but on all the nations of the world. God had promised long ago to their father Abraham that one day there would come an offspring through Abraham's line. And this offspring would bring blessing to the nations. The scriptures anticipated an age when the nations of the world would embrace Israel's God, and when all the peoples of the world, not just Israel, but the ethne, the nations, the Gentiles, would praise the Lord and the imagery that she used is the nations streaming into the sanctuary of God. And so Israel waited. So the day when Yahweh, Israel's God, would be worshipped not only by Israelites according to the flesh, but by Gentiles, by the peoples of the world, by people that look like you and me and live in places like Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Many of the Psalms looked forward to this day. For example, Psalm 98, uh, which is the inspiration, by the way, behind the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. And which is why we won't only sing Joy to the World when the culture tells us we can sing it in the month of December, because it's based on Psalm 98. It says this, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen The salvation of our God. Okay, you're in Isaiah 60. Here's Isaiah. He's prophesied that the light will come, and this light will shine on Israel. And then he reveals, astonishingly, that this very same light would shine on the nations also. Read with me, if you would, Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover all the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. Not people, not Israel. Now it's the peoples, the nations, but the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip, and then you shall see and be radiated. Your heart shall thrill and exalt. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. That's the reaction we should have when our missionaries around the world tell us of peoples coming to faith in Christ. The abundance of the sea is coming to Jesus, through the Messiah. This light that would shine, yes, on Israel, will dawn, will shine not only on Israel, but will shine on the peoples of the world. The people's far from the center of Judaism, far from where the temple was located. Indeed, to the ends of the earth. God will send forth this light, and it's the same light, it's His Son. This becomes clear to us in other passages that speak of the Messiah, the Christ, being a light to the nations. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah 42. Just a couple more texts to turn to. Isaiah 42. Now, Isaiah 42 speaks of A character known as the servant of the Lord. And the servant of the Lord is identified as the Lord's Christ. The Lord's anointed. The Lord's Messiah. So the child who is born, the son who is given, what we learn is he will be this servant of the Lord. Revealed in Isaiah 42 verse 1. And listen to what's said about him. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. That's a beautiful image. The coastlands are waiting for the word of God. Not just Israel and his temple. No, the distant coastlands will wait for His law, which means, listen, if you came here this morning expecting and anticipating the Word of God, the law of the Lord, we're here in direct fulfillment of this promise. We are the coastlands, and we've come today waiting, expecting God to bring His Word to us, God to bring His law to us. The distant coastlands will come and wait on the Lord and look to Him as their God, not just Israel, but the nations of the world. Verse 5, thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. So listen as I read one more text, Isaiah 49 verses 5 and 6. Again, writing of the servant of the Lord, the coming Messiah, we read this, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that's Israel, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength, he says, this is remarkable, this is God speaking to his servant, to the Messiah, his anointed one, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. That's not enough. It's too light. I want more than that. I want you to do more than that. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Not Not this one area. Mesopotamia, I want it to go global. I want the glory of the Lord to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's too light a thing that my anointed one, the servant of the Lord, this light would shine only on the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. I want it shining everywhere. I want the coastlands waiting for His law, not just Jews in the temple. I want everybody singing Psalm 19 and Psalm 1 and Psalm 119. I want everyone delighting. In the word of the Lord. All right, this light will be for Israel. Point number two, this light will be for the nations. Point number three, this light is for you. This light is for you. And I mean you singular. Like you yourself. You've come here today. This light is for you turn finally one more passage John chapter 1 the gospel of John chapter 1 the fourth gospel account somewhere around page 970 or 980 or 990 if you're using the pew Bible for 750 years Israel looked forward to the dawning of light look for the light to come into the world and in the fullness of time the light came now listen how the apostle John describes it in John chapter 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God But he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to every one, was coming into the world. And John will identify this light as the word made flesh. Jesus Christ, who came and dwelt among us. But what's striking in John's portrayal of this light, when Jesus finally comes. And when Jesus identifies Himself as the light that was to come, and the light that was prophesied in Isaiah, He doesn't focus merely on Israel, or just on the global implications of His coming. Jesus, when He speaks of Himself as the light who has come, makes it very relevant, and very urgent, and very personal for every one of us. Jesus wants to be your light. He wants to shine on you. And he's interested in your darkness, your sin. So he says, John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever, any individual who comes to me. John 12, 46, Jesus says, I have come into the world as light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. You see, this light is for you. Whoever. Whoever. That means, Ed, if you come to Jesus the light, you won't remain in darkness. Josh Calhoun, if you come to Jesus the light, you won't remain in darkness. And Gene and Dawn down the line, if you come to Jesus the light, the promise is he'll save you. Jesus is zooming in from the 30,000 foot view of the nations and the coastlands. That's true enough. He'll shine on the peoples. And He is willing to shine on you and to be a light for you. And this is a true statement. He wants to be a light for you. He wants to be a light for you in your thick darkness. And the thick darkness, friends, we all find ourselves in is not some kind of Assyrian captivity or some kind of political oppression or some kind of social and cultural problem. Sin is darkness. The thick darkness we're all born into is the darkness created by our willful rebellion against God. The sins that we commit against Him. Sin is darkness. Sin is our sorrow and our night. Sin is the reason why we walk around like fools in the dark bumping into each other. We can't see in front of us. Sin is why we're blind. It's our sins that have thrust us into deep darkness. And to such people, individual sinners, Jesus says, I've come for you so that you would not remain in darkness, so that you would be delivered from your darkness, from your sin, from your bondage, from all that would damn you, from all that would separate you eternally from God. I've given a light, a light, and He's willing to shine on you that you might be saved, delivered from the kingdom of darkness, transported into the kingdom of light. Now, here's the issue. Not everyone responds to the light in the same way. John will also say this in John 3. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his work should be exposed, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that His works have been carried out in God. I close this message, and as we anticipate taking the supper in a few moments, with just two words in closing. First, to those here who would recognize that they are not followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're here this morning. You're not a believer. You haven't come to Jesus Christ and embraced Him as your Savior and your Lord. I want to be clear to you. Light has come into the world. Light has come into the world, and He is this world's only light. And He desires, He comes to shine that you might be saved, that you might be delivered. The good news of Christmas is that light has come for a sinner such as you, a sinner such as me, and you can be saved. Don't get distracted by all the Christmas trees and the candy canes and the holiday movies and all the commercialism and materialism that we are inundated with this time of year. What Christmas is about is that light has come into the world for sinners like you and me. Light has come for the people who dwelt in thick darkness. You say, You don't know what I've done. You don't know the dark places I've gone. You don't know the treachery I've committed. I've been in some dark, dark places. And I'm in a dark place right now. My friend, I've come into the world as light, that whosoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. Jesus, the light comes for the people dwelling in thick darkness, in sinful patterns and addictions and attitudes, people have done wicked things that they can't go back and change however hard they wish they could. The light will come for those who dwell in thick darkness. My friend, you can be saved. You simply must know yourself to be in darkness, know yourself to be a sinner, and go to Christ the light and say, would you forgive me of my sins? I believe in you, I trust in you, I want to have the light of life, I want the Savior, I want the Lord Jesus Christ, and He'll have you and He'll receive you and forgive you of all your sins, you'll have light, and one day that light will bring you into His heavenly kingdom where no darkness is permitted to come, not even an inch. Final word to those who are believers, those who have come to the light, have forsaken it, Their darkness and their sin and have trusted in the Lord Jesus and are following Him. The kinds of people who will come at the communion table and partake of the elements. Communicating their faith in what Jesus Christ has done in their place. Here's the word for you. Christ did come into the world for you as light. At some point you believed the light. You trusted the light. You came to the light. He came as light so that you too would not remain in darkness. And so here's my word to you. Don't recede. Don't withdraw back into darkness. Don't try to cover up in the shade different portions of your life. We're meant to walk always in the light. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 5. John tells us that in 1 John 1. We must walk in the light as He is in the light. Jesus gets all of me. I must bring my sins to Him continually. Andrew Cartledge led us so well in a prayer of confession earlier in this service. What was He doing? He's helping us walk in the light. Let's acknowledge our sins to God. Let's acknowledge the dark corners that are in there. Let's give it all to Him. Let's not let the roaches and the rats of darkness fester in the crevices. Let's root them out and dispel them. Let us who have the light walk in the light. Let us always bring to God any vestige of darkness and repent of our sins and again come to Him. It would be such a good thing to pray and ask God for renewal this time of the year, this day even as we come to the Lord's table. Father, I've not been walking as I should, I know that. I've allowed too much darkness to creep in, dispel the darkness. I bring it to you. I repent of my sins and afresh I put my trust in the light. Don't let me remain in darkness. Don't let me abide in darkness. I want to abide in the light. I want to abide in Christ. How wonderful would it be if this congregation of people together could walk out of this place today all basking in the light of the Son of God walking in faith in His sacrifice in our place, not making excuses for our sins, but turning from them and trusting in Him and what He has done for us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, We thank You for Your zeal. Your zeal that looked upon Your people in thick darkness. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. And You didn't close the book then. And banish us all in outer darkness. But thank You for the zeal of the Lord of hosts. That has made glorious the way of the sea that has raised up a light to shine on the land that dwelt in deep darkness. A light that has arisen to shine upon the peoples, the coastlands, the ends of the earth. A light that has shined and has been given to us. We pray, Lord, that You would dispel our darkness, that You would remove the gloomy clouds of night, that You would deliver us from all of our sins, We do not want to walk anymore in thick darkness. We would have the light of life. We would have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah who has come to be our Lord and our Savior, our Deliverer, and to be our light, to lead us through this life and to lead us finally to glory. Give us of that light today. May we trust in Him and may we know all the purifying effects of light to purge us from sin and cleanse us from darkness and wash us afresh. Please do this through what Your Son has done in our place on the cross, which we now contemplate together in the supper. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.